Father, we thank you uh, that you've revealed to us how amazing you are and that you've chosen to uh, continue to reveal yourself even with people like us that um, sometimes fail to get it or we forget how majestic, how awesome you are and, and we cling to other things. So we pray that we would not do that. Help us to uh, have a, a grander vision of you. And so we, we welcome you now to open us up, do the work in us that you need to do, heal us, fix us, transform us, change us, build us up uh, through your word in this time. That's, that's why we're here. Uh, if we leave here with that having not happened, it's, it was a waste. But Lord, we pray that this time would be glorifying to you and that you were able to change your people and make us all that you want us to be as you continue to work on us. And we ask you to do that now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, those of you uh, with kids or you had kids, you remember the day when you had to take them around and to sports, you know. And uh, this past week, I was reminded of um, how interesting it is when you meet other parents at these uh, sports venues for your kids. You know, our daughter's playing basketball. Uh, and if, um, if you remember, you know, uh, when you take your kids, you sit next to some parents and some of them, it seems like they get it. My understanding is we're here to build the children up. We're here to teach them sportsmanship. We're here to teach them how to win and how to lose. Uh, we're here to teach them how to respect other teams and their teammates. We're here to t- teach them teamwork. But some parents, the way they behave, I, I think to myself, I, I don't think that's why they're here. <laughs> you know, I think they just want to win. I think they lost a lot as a little ch- as a little child, and now this is their chance via their their kids now to get those wins, you know, and relive sports through their their children. And they get nasty, you know. They get nasty. They yell at the coach. Okay. The other team was up by a lot of points and they're yelling at the scoreboard keeper. Hey, hey, it's not 34 to three. It's 36 to three. You didn't put the other two up there. We're like, really? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's how they get. Then after the game, they're like, they go up to their child. I taught you to shoot like this. You weren't shooting like that. And they're like really getting on their kid's case. And it's just a game, right? They're for the wrong reasons. And you can tell there's little signs. There's little things that you see when the parents aren't there to build their kids up, for, to teach their kids about a game. They're there to teach their kids how to mow over other kids or, or to win at all costs and to be completely depressed when they can't. Um, they're there for other reasons, other motives. And as we continue going through the book of Matthew, you, it, it's very clear. Matthew has, there's several agendas that Matthew has. And one of his top themes is guys, I don't want my readers, he doesn't want people who read this, this book, the book of Matthew, to walk away enjoying things that he's written for the wrong reasons. He makes it very clear, he compiled a lot of what Jesus taught to show us that it's very easy to accept Christianity and deny Christ. It's very easy to become churchy and not get the gospel. It's very easy to learn Christianese and learn how to talk the talk and walk the walk 
You know, after a few Sundays, you see how everyone else dresses. You can dress the like. You know, you after a few Sundays, you see how people talk. You talk like that. Um, after a few Sundays, you realize, oh, we're not supposed to cuss. All right, I'll work on that. And and it's very easy to adopt the Christian culture and do the things that are good and and stop doing the things that are quote unquote bad and and all this and and completely and completely miss it and completely miss it. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at a, a scene that continues this temple scene. Like we were singing that song, Hosanna. This is what they were shouting when Jesus enters Jerusalem and they're throwing their cloaks and their palm branches in front of him, like laying out the red carpet. He's our king. And Hosanna means save us. And at that point, what they were saying was, you're the savior. The, the one to save us has come. And so they're saying, Hosanna, son of David, he's come. And they're shouting Hosanna. The kids are shouting Hosanna in the temple. And people are like, don't you understand what they're saying? Yeah, I get what they're saying, he tells them. And so the little uh, heat starts brewing between the leaders in the temple and Jesus. Makes sense. He went in there and flipped their tables over. He took their, uh, the little coffers that would hold the, the money change, uh, the, 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 the coins, and poured them out. You know, it's one thing to knock them over, but to grab them and go, Psh! you kind of stare them down while you do it. He took a time out and went and made a whip of cords. Uh, weaved some cords together and came in and drove out all the cattle. I mean, this is a huge scene. This wasn't like two minutes like he blew his top. It was planned out. It was intentional. And, he, and he's taking tables and, and flipping them. And, and just get out. Get this stuff out of here. And the chief priest really wanted to just choke Jesus and just kill him on the spot. But they, but they couldn't because the crowds... We're saying, this is the son of David. And at that point, the crowds were on Jesus' side. Now, we know the crowds are fickle because we turn a couple pages and then, then they're shouting, crucify him. But, but right now, they're, they're, they've got Jesus back. And so the chief priests are just letting him flip their tables and, and, I don't know, open the cages and let the doves out. I don't know what. He's just like completely getting the stuff out of here, getting the cattle out. So then they pose a question to him. The best thing they could do is engage Jesus in a debate. And in this debate they start with a question. Who gives you the authority to do this? Now, they're not just asking that like, hey, hey, who are you to come in here and, and, and flip tables? I mean, that's kind of what they're asking, but it's actually a theological question that they're posing to him to try to trap him, okay? Because they know if he says, yeah, I'm the son of God, if he says it explicitly, then they can try to tag him with the blasphemy thing. So they, they pose it to him. We're going to ask you a question. By what authority do you do this? By whose authority do you, do you come in here and teach the things that you're teaching? They're not even talking about by whose authority do you flip tables, but, but what you're teaching. Who gave you the authority to say those things? So Jesus, not wanting to get caught in their trap, he geniusly checkmates them by turning the tables. All right, you want, to, you want me to incriminate myself. I'm not going to incriminate myself unless you incriminate yourself first. I have a question for you. If you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. So he flips them a question. You remember John, when he was baptizing people, he was at the river preaching and baptizing people? They're like, yeah. He's like, okay, his message, his baptism, all that he taught, was that from heaven or was it from man? Was it from earth or was it from God? Was it a godly thing? Was it legit? Or was it a sham? Was it, was it fake? Was he a charlatan? Uh, a, a faker? Or, was it, or did he deliver the word of God? Was he true? So they, they conferred amongst themselves. Right? So they said, we'll be right back. And they, they went behind a corner, behind some flip tables and whatever. And they said, okay, 
how are we going to answer that? And they were in a dilemma. Here's why. And they said, if we, if we say John was a fake, all those people that John baptized, they're going to go, hey! <laughs> and, and the crowds are going to be against us. But if we say John was true, then he's going to say, well, why don't you believe what he said? Because John said he was the forerunner to me and that I'm the one. And we don't want that. We don't want to empower Jesus. So they came back with their most clever answer, the best answer they could muster up. I don't know. That was their answer. We don't know. And he said, well, neither am I going to tell you the answer to your question. In other words, you know. You know the answer. And so do I. But I'm not going to say it if you're not willing to say it. If you're not going to stick your neck out, then why make me stick my neck out? It wasn't Jesus' time yet. So then, while they're dumbfounded and, you know, have nothing to say, he proceeds to tell them what the answer is. They already know the answer. But he's going to tell them the answer, and he's going to tell them what they get for rejecting the answer. The answer is that, yes, John's baptism was true. John's message was true. And if John's message was true, then I'm the one. I'm the one that has authority to come and clean out the temple the way I see fit. I'm the one who has the authority to receive Hosanna praises from children and from adults. I'm the one who has the right to walk in like a king into Jerusalem. I'm the one that people are expecting. And then he proceeds to tell them three stories, three parables that we're going to look at this morning. And these three parables serve like little mini episodes to drive home the point that because you guys are religious, the chief priests and the scribes, and because you guys are in charge of the temple and you wear your robes and you know a lot of Bible verses, even though you're religious, you miss the point of the religion and therefore you incur judgment. You will be judged with wrath because you're supposed to know it and you don't. If anybody knows that it's me, it should be you. You're the ones that memorize verses. You're the teachers of Scripture and you still miss me. So it's possible for insiders, to, they're supposed to get it, and they don't get it. Let's look at that in, in Matthew uh, chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. You remember that uh, Mike uh, taught us last week so helpfully that after he cleared the temple, Jesus also cursed the fig tree that wasn't producing fruit. And the disciples were like, man, how did you do that? And he's like, I'm not going to teach you guys parlor tricks. This, this isn't like I'm just cheap tricks. Uh, you're going to walk around and, and curse living things and then they're shriveling. People are going to go, wow, and then start coming to your church. This is something bigger than that. This is about this mount, this temple, and how it's not producing the fruit it's supposed to be produced. And because of that, it should just be tossed into the sea. It's worthless if it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. So then the next morning, the chief priests, they asked him. The elders of the people asked him that question. He turns it on them. They don't want to answer. And he says, okay, I'll answer with these three stories. Verse 28 is the first one. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. Go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? 
did the will of his father? Well, they said the first. So we'll pause there a second. You have a man, he's got two sons, and he tells them the same message. The first one, he tells them, go and work in the vineyard today. He says, no, I'm not going to work in the vineyard today. I'm not working in the vineyard. I'm not your slave. Forget you. Disrespectful, doesn't listen, doesn't give us the reasons why. He just says, I'm not going to do it. He rejects the message. He rejects the command. He doesn't respect the father, and he walks away. But at some point, he has a change of mind, a change of heart. He goes, you know what? I should, I should work the vineyard today. And he does it. The second son, he tells him, son, go work the vineyard. And the son says, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do it. Yeah, I'm supposed to work the vineyard. I know, I know, I know. And then something happens. He gets busy. He forgets. He doesn't do it. Jesus said, which one obeyed the father? Well, they're, they're, not, they're not idiots. They, they give him the right answer. They said the first, verse 31. The first son is the one that did the will of his father. And Jesus gives them the point. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, you know, the people that the, 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 they were just viewed as the worst of the worst of sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, he's just giving examples of types of people that we think are the, just the most outcast, the most whatever. Uh, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Think of how scandalous that sounds. Before these, these guys that were in charge of teaching Scripture to people, Bible experts get held out in line and the bouncer at the door goes, say prostitute. What? Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. There's the answer. He's answering what they weren't willing to answer. John came to you in the way of righteousness. It was true what John taught. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you, even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So what he's saying is, you have this message. You've been raised as a little child in understanding the Torah, the law. right? You've been raised as a little child reading the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. You've got the whole Testament. You've memorized the wisdom literature and the Proverbs and the Psalms. You sing the Psalms in the temple. You know all this stuff. You wear scriptures on your forehead. Right? Like Livestrong bracelets with a little box on it and little scrolls inside. And they just all wore them around. How big is yours? This is how big is mine? Oh, cool. I got three of them. You know, it just became this religious thing about how many things you can wear, how loud your prayers were, how many big words you could squeeze into your prayer so all the people can hear how theological I am. This is how they prayed. Prostitutes, tax collectors, they don't know how to pray. Tax collectors abused people, prostitutes were abused people. They don't know anything. They're just desperate. And Jesus said, you guys had a message. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we get it, we get it. And then when Jesus comes, you're like, no. You accept it at first, and then actually you reject it. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are like, no, no, we live however we want. We don't want to hear this message. But then they meet Jesus, and they go, whoa, I changed my mind. They're in. And all you guys with all your religious background, but then rejected Jesus, you're out. It doesn't matter how many temple services you, you served, you, you attended, how many Bible verses you knew, you don't get what the Bible verses are about. You don't get what all the temple was pointing to. Me. Jesus. But these people that they're not supposed to get it, they, they didn't get it. They rejected the message. They never wanted to go to temple. They never wanted to hear preaching or prophecy. You try to share them a verse and they're like, ah, oh, leave me alone. But they finally met Jesus and they changed their mind. They're in. 
And so they go in ahead of you. So Jesus drops this bomb on them. And it just it makes me realize that I, I think oftentimes it's the religious types that are the most resistant to repentance. I mean, if you tell your child to do something and they're like, oh, but I don't want to do it. Come on, you got to do it. But it's just so hard. They're rejecting it first. And then at some point they're like, well, I get it. And they finally do it. You know that they, something clicked and they got it. But if you have another kid and you're telling them, do this thing that I'm telling you to do. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And then they don't do it. Now you have a case of somebody who thinks they get stuff and, and they don't really. Oftentimes people will tell me and they say, man, I, I'm praying for my neighbor. And my neighbor is just such a staunch atheist. Just can't stand talking about God. He's angry toward Christianity. Hates Christians. Angry at God. Doesn't want God to do anything with his life. And I just feel like, man, should I even keep praying? They're just so far from the Lord. I said, actually, they might be very close. Because if they're angry with him, then they're not really atheists. You can't be angry with somebody that doesn't exist. I mean, I hate the tooth fairy. I can't stand it, leaving tooth, the teeth around and cheap coins and stuff. It's ridiculous. I can't stand the tooth fairy. Yeah, loony bin, right? But I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. He's such a jerk. They want to be an atheist, but they're not. They're upset. They're angry. That's something to talk about. If you're upset with God, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Let's look at Scripture. What upsets you about God? What's going on here? Let's unpack that a little bit. I'd rather have that conversation any day than the person that's like, yeah, yeah, I get, I get who God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But they don't. Where do you even start the conversation? You don't get it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Well, you know, they, they know how to answer their questions. You know, if you ask them, well, what's the gospel? Well, the gospel is uh, God created man and, uh, to worship him, and uh, God, uh, man doesn't worship him. And so um, he had to send Jesus Christ to be the perfect worshiper for us, die in our place, and yeah, he'd get all the right answers. Yep. Explain the Trinity. Well, three persons, one eternal substance. Uh, you know, what's the pur- purpose of man? Oh, I remember that one. I had that Sunday school class. So the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and join him forever at Westminster Catechism. I read that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah but still live however they want to live. What do you do with that person? What Jesus is saying is you got people that are resistant, they're resistant toward God, but then they meet Christ and they get it. Something clicks and they get it. Versus other people that are sort of so familiar with Scripture, they're so involved in religion that they miss the point of it. In fact, when Jesus threatens to disrupt the religion that they've fostered together, they reject Him. Verse 33 says, here another parable. If that wasn't enough of a kick in the teeth, he gives them another one. Verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, his servants... uh, He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, Well, they'll respect my son. But the tenants saw the son. They said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. 
And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? In other words, he, he, the owner of the vineyard hasn't come yet, but when he comes, what's he going to do to those people that killed the son? They said to him, verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. You, you see, they, they don't see that it's them. <laughs> they'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. I mean, talk about finishing Jesus' sermon for him. Not only is he going to come back and deal with those miserable wretches and kick them out of the vineyard, he's going to then give the vineyard to someone else who deserves it and will actually work the field like they were supposed to. He, they give him the message. Jesus says to them, verse 42, Have you never read in Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You guys have read that verse a lot of times. I'm telling you, the stone is me. The son in that story that was killed, that was me. And the father sent you prophets and you kill them. And he sends you John. He gets killed. He sends finally Jesus, the son, the one. And you guys don't want to do anything but kill me. Therefore, I tell you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing his fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is he saying there? He's saying, I'm going to take all that the temple was supposed to stand for to represent me. And like I promised to Abraham, I'll bless you so that you bless other nations. You guys aren't blessing other nations. You guys don't even accept Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, I'm going to allow this, this thing to fall apart, be taken from you, and I'm going to put something else in its place. So now we have the church of Jesus Christ. Um, not that the church replaces Israel, but where Israel has faltered, where Israel has not done its job, God is doing something else. That includes Israelites, but also Gentiles, to proclaim God's message to the world and to live righteously the way they're supposed to. And it all begins with accepting Jesus Christ. Jew, Gentile, prostitute, tax collector, lawyer, mechanic, doesn't matter your background, your race, your origin, your ethnicity. If you come to grips with the fact that you need Jesus Christ, you're in this vineyard. And you're to produce its fruits. And he says in verse 44, the one who trips over the stone, the one who stumbles over Jesus. In other words, sees Jesus and doesn't get it. Sees Jesus but doesn't want it. Understands the gospel but doesn't partake in it. That's what he means by tripping over the stone, which is himself. Uh, those are the ones that will be crushed by that stone. They will receive judgment because they got the message and they rejected it. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. It took them a while. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The crowds didn't quite get it either, but he's not scolding the crowds. They're not the ones that studied Scripture all day. These guys studied the prophecies that clearly spoke about him. He just fulfilled part of it coming in on a donkey the day before. Being fulfilled right in front of them. And they're just blocking themselves. They don't want Jesus to be the one that he is. And so when he gives them this second parable, they get what he's saying. They get that he's talking about them. They just can't make their move yet. So in other words, 
they understand what he's saying. They're just not convicted by it. They understand what, what, what he's saying in the parable, but they're still trying to figure out, hmm, how do we kill this guy? Is that crazy? They understand that they're in the parable, they're the ones that kill the son. And as they understand what he's saying, they get the information that he's giving. In their hearts, they're going, how do we kill this guy? They don't get it, even though they get it. That's the, that's the paradox. That's the conundrum. That is the weird thing about being Christian-y, but not being Christian. How is that possible? Well, it was possible for them, and it's possible for us. How do I know it's possible for people in the church? He said that, that those kind of people, he's going to cast them out, and he's going to create a people for himself, a new people that are going to do this the right way. But even within those new people, there's still going to be people that are jump on board because they like religion, but they don't get Jesus. And it's not a stretch to apply that. Jesus applies that. He gives them one more parable where that comes out. And that's in the top of chapter 22. Let's look at that third and final parable. The parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus spoke again to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Imagine sending our RSVPs and nobody came. The devastation. Well, verse 4, Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Maybe the RSVP cards got lost in the mail. Maybe gmail crashed or something maybe all the notes that i sent out so i'm going to send people in person they're going to go and they're going to go and knock on doors and face to face tell them look we we have this kind of food that if it's not good enough to just be with the groom if it's not good enough to just show up and be a part of the wedding maybe you'll come because all the the feast is going to be awesome all this stuff that we're providing please come they would not verse five but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Some of them just ignored the message, and some of them hated the message to the point where they killed the messenger. Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. We'll pause there a second. You have this wedding, okay? And if we're a little bit sharper than the Pharisees on this, we're getting where he's going with this. The father sends his son. And his son is saying, is sending a message. Come to this wedding come be a part of me come into this relationship that the, the father is offering through me and people are rejecting it some people just reject it they don't want it some people walk away some people get to the point where they'll kill they'll kill prophets they'll kill me and the king is angry in return we, we want to make sure we never erase god's wrath and when you explain what god is like to people yes he's loving but, but, there's, but there's wrath there. You know, if, if my kids did things that were disobedient and I just never got upset and I just sang chim chimri with them and just pretended like everything was okay, 
bad dad, right? And so when God sees the treatment toward his son, God feels angry. And it's not wrong for God to be angry because anger is not a sin. It's a righteous anger. He's angry for the right reasons. And so he goes and casts judgment on those who rejected his son. And then he says, the program's not over. The program's not over just because a few people were too religious to, miss, to get my son. They were too religious to get it. The program's not over. We're going to get people, maybe they're not religious, but we're, we're going to teach them what it's about. So go into the streets and invite everybody you see into this kingdom. So the servants do that. Now, what perked my attention when I was preparing this in verse 10 was they gathered all whom they found both bad and good. And that's kind of weird. Well, we just already dealt with bad people. Why would you do that again? I wasn't sure. Well, what was happening there? The answer is in the next paragraph. Verse 11, the story's not over. Verse 11 says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, so here are all the guests that his servants went and got. He already judged with wrath. He, he took out all those people that didn't come and, and were murderers. And now he's looking at all his guests. And there he sees a man who has no wedding garment. I know he's not properly dressed for a wedding. You know, he just came from work. He's still like in his overalls from work or whatever. Or he's still in his chef jacket or pharmaceutical jacket, whatever he's, whatever he's wearing, but it's not, it's not a wedding garment. In verse 12, he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The guy had nothing to say. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. He doesn't go, hey, you don't belong here. Mm, Have your fun somewhere else. No judgment. Judgment. And when Jesus uses those words, you're reminded of elsewhere in Matthew and the Gospels when those words are used. And you immediately get an image of where people go that reject the Father the Father's gift of the Son. It's a place of torment. It's a place of outer darkness. All that God is, love, peace, joy, this place of outer darkness is away from God. You want to be away from God? You want to be separated from God? You stay separated forever. So rather than peace, you get chaos forever. Rather than love, you get torment forever. Rather than joy, you're depressed forever. That's outer darkness. And people say, well, hell isn't, you know, it's not weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, it's an imagery it's life without God. Yes, it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's torment and pain. The fact that I'm breathing right now is a gift of Christ. It's Colossians 1. The fact that trees still grow. The fact that snow still falls. Jesus is holding it together. This is a place where Jesus is, he's not holding things together for you. It's hell. But what's intriguing about this passage, even when the religious people that were supposed to control the temple, they've been Okay, you guys are rejecting. I'm doing this new thing. The kingdom of God. And we say, okay, the church. Within that group, there's both good and bad. And when he spots one of the bad ones, he's like, outer darkness. Well, that guy wasn't there for the wedding. That guy wasn't there to honor the groom or he would have dressed appropriately. He was there for the food. He was there for the snacks. He heard the little centerpiece. He gave to go home with it. And it's a good one. You know, who knows what he heard? He's there for the company. He's there for the live music. 
You heard somebody like Carl was going to DJ it, and it's always a fun time. It's a fun time. He's not there for the groom. And what Jesus is saying is very similar to what we learned in Matthew 13. You remember those parables? Like there's a field and there's, there's wheat that grows. God is growing wheat, but weeds grow up in it too. And the angels are like, hey, should we just cut them all down? No, 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 because then you might hurt the wheat. Let's wait till a time where we sift the wheat from the weeds. And all the weeds will be burned and thrown into outer darkness and we'll keep the wheat. What is that about? He said the kingdom is going to be like a net that gets cast and thrown and catches a bunch of fish and you drag it to shore. And then there comes a time when the net is open and they separate the good fish from the bad fish. What is that? Here you have a wedding banquet where they go and they invite people, both good and bad. I mean, not intention, you wouldn't intentionally invite bad people, but humans are humans, right? We don't have that x-ray vision. And so we do the best we can. But the kingdom is going to have people in it, visibly, humanly speaking, that really aren't part of the kingdom. And there'll come a time when they'll be judged just as those chief priests and elders were judged for being religious and missing Jesus. And he drops it on them that this is, uh, this is about Jesus making sure that those who are following him follow him for the right reason. That if you're into the wedding, you're into the wedding because you want to honor the groom. You're not into weddings because you're a wedding crasher. You're not a spectator who just sits in the sidelines and sits in the stands and just kind of cheers on the game. You got a jersey on and you're in it. And you live and die with this team. And so Jesus is saying, this will always be an issue. It will always be an issue to have people that are religious but miss what it's about. The people buy into Christianity, but they just don't buy Jesus. Not really. It's easy to accept Christianity. It's hard to accept Christ. There's a lot of nice things about Christianity. A lot of really nice verses that you can put on a bumper sticker, embroider on a pillow. They're nice. You know? There's a lot of nice things about Christianity. Nice people. You know, people to share recipes with people to go bowling with. There's nice stuff about Christianity. In fact, atheists have this Sunday assembly that they're doing now. Uh, some of you may have read about it in the Chicago Tribune or elsewhere. They, atheists are tired of all kind of being on their own. They want a place where they can gather, have small groups, sing songs, read poetry, have someone stand up and share something. We want all that, and some of them used to be Christians. In this article that, uh, that I read, one of the Christians uh, was saying, when I used to go to church, I loved all those things about Christianity, but now that I reject God, I miss those things. I want those things without God. And so they start this thing called Sunday Assembly. There are congregations that meet together, they're atheists, and somebody stands up and rambles about why they're atheists, and everybody applauds, and maybe they have skits, and maybe they have Sunday school for the kids, maybe there's snacks and refreshments afterwards, maybe they have chairs that look very much like ours. There's a lot of reasons why people would want to jump on board with Christianity but not get Christ. And what Jesus is saying is there's a reason why you join. If you look at the top of your bulletin, the front of it, if you notice the title of the series is not Church for the Right Reasons, plural. It's Church for the Right Reason, singular. Why? Because oh, there's a lot of reasons why someone might go to a church. 
But there's only one reason why you're supposed to be there. There's one purpose. In the Old Testament, when they took care of the temple, the temple was supposed to be a place where they worshipped God in anticipation of Christ, waiting for that time for Christ to come, waiting for that time that would say Hosanna. So they worshipped in anticipation of Christ. The church gathers today worshipping in appreciation of the Christ that came and is coming again. It's all about Jesus Christ. Now, why would somebody embrace Christianity and not embrace Christ? Because Christ is in your face with your sin. Christ is in your face with the fact that he had to die for you. And for you to recognize that Jesus died for you, you have to recognize that you deserve death. Now, who wants to stand up and go, I deserve death? You know, we just think people on death row deserve death. Maybe, maybe even not. But I don't deserve death because I didn't do that much. We don't get the holiness of God. Why is this king angry and he's killing people? Like, like God is ugly. He's angry, you know? It's only those that get his anger. You should be angry, God, because I don't worship you. I worship myself. I'm my own God. I don't want to serve you. I want to serve myself. And that should make you angry. I do deserve to die. I love that line in Amazing Grace. Was grace taught my heart to fear. That's not the most cuddly line of the, of the hymn. Grace taught my heart to fear. In other words, it was by God's gift that something snapped and I was able to realize, oh my goodness, I should fear this God. I don't deserve to be with him. I should be cast out into outer darkness. And then the next line, but it was also by grace that my fears were relieved. Recognizing because of what Jesus did, that gap is, is between me and God is, is brought together again. I'm, I'm brought back into relationship with God. I don't have to earn it but because of what Jesus did. Now, you can't enjoy the second line until you enjoy the first line. But nobody likes the first line. Nobody wants to deal with sin, the yucky stuff that makes me feel dirty and makes me feel condemned. I feel pretty good about myself, so I want to reject that. You, 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 can't, you can't do that. So whatever the things are that we enjoy about church, we want to enjoy them. We want to enjoy them for the right reason. A worship song is not awesome because John just brought a different guitar today and that was why it was awesome that might have been fun but how well did that song point us to jesus christ our hunger for him our need for him that's what makes a song awesome when a pastor's done preaching well that was great why was it great well because he told this joke and it was funny i can't wait to tell it at you know in the locker room when i go to the park district no it was awesome if now i understand christ more now I'm hungrier for Christ. I want him more. I want to pursue him more. It's about Jesus Christ, my need for him. I'm desperate in need of Jesus Christ. I need his grace. I want to push after him more. That's a successful church service, guys. So I want to leave us with two things as we wrap up. One, are you here for the right reason? And here's a test, okay? That's not a fail-proof test, but here's one way. When a sermon pricks at you, and you feel like, oh my goodness, the preacher was talking to me today. Well, that verse, I just felt like it was written for me. Like Matthew knew, you know, where I was or whatever. Something in the sermon pricks you. You feel convicted. What do you do with that? Do you stuff it in a corner and ignore it? Or do you just, do you just gush repentance? God, please, I put that before you. Change me. A real Christian does the second one. Someone who just kind of stuffs it in the corner and kind of doesn't want to talk about it. Your spouse brings it up over lunch and you kind of flip it into something else and you end up talking about the Super Bowl. That, that's, that's a sign of somebody who doesn't get it. It doesn't matter how many church services you've attended. 
if you're, the posture of your heart is resistance toward repentance, or resistance toward repentance, that's a bad sign. And you might be at the wedding party, but you might be poorly dressed. You need to back up and think about what, what is repentance. Secondly, when we tell people we want them to come to church, we're not really promoting CFC, right? We're not just promoting CFC. We want people to come to church. We want people to come to CFC. We don't want people to come to church. We want people to come to Christ. It involves coming to church, and that's great. But some of us who live too far from CFC to invite people to CFC, we still evangelize, right? Find a church that's near and invite them to that. But we need to change our prayers a little bit from, God, please bring people to church. We want to say, God, please bring people to yourself, to Jesus Christ. Bring people to repentance. Those are the people that stick. Those are the people that are really part of the kingdom. And we want to lead with that. We want to explain that to people, that it's the full message of the gospel. This isn't about, oh, please come. We have a nice service. We just got new chairs. This is about Jesus Christ, our need for him. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and we're going to close in a song. As we do that, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we can reflect on those questions. Am I, am I the type of person that repents? when I'm convicted of something, and do I, do I get it? And when I talk to others about the gospel, um, do I just talk about Christianity, or do I get to the heart of the message, which is the need to repent, to give ourselves over to Jesus Christ, and experience His grace of forgiveness? Right? Let's stand and close in worship together.